James shows us a faith that works. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. There's just a few of you that are doing well here this morning, it sounds like. More of you are probably doing well, but you just didn't answer me, did you? Are you doing well? Yeah. Ooh, that's much better. Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church, Faith That Works, the book of James. Going to talk about wealth this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 5. We'll look at verses 1 through 6. James is showing us what our lives will look like if we have real faith, saving faith. Let me start off by asking you a question here. You can answer out loud if you would like. Do you think most Americans have a problem with materialism? Oh, is that a dumb question? Yeah, because we, we know that. Do you think most Americans know that they have a problem with materialism? What do you guys think about that? No, actually, we don't. We don't know that. We have a major problem. In fact, we're heading into, after Thanksgiving, one of the biggest holidays of the year. It's all about materialism, consumption, consumerism, commercialism, and... Uh, yeah, that's a major problem. Here's another question for you. You can discuss it with the folks sitting around you. And that is, um, here's the question. What is materialism anyway? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the answer to that. What is materialism? What is materialism? Real quick, I'll give you about 30 seconds. You guys, you guys coming up with some good answers? Got some good answers for that? Here, let me give you my answers for that. I believe they're biblical answers. Not to say that yours aren't, but I, I will give you the biblical answer here for it. What is materialism? Materialism is loving money or anything you can buy with money more than God. How many were, were on track there? How many were on track? Okay. Just like a few of you, okay? That's good that you're here because I'm going to explain to you that answer, okay? You guys ready for my explanation? Yeah. So, so materialism is loving money or anything you can buy with money more than God. It is thinking. It's driven by this kind of mindset. It is thinking that money or anything you can buy with money can make you happier than God. And that's insane. If you know God, if you've, if you've even had a glimpse of who God is and what he's done for you through Jesus Christ... That's insane, and yet, and yet we have a billion-dollar commercial industry of consumption and consumerism that's coming after you. I mean, it's all over. It's on TV. They've got commercials rolling every, every so many minutes. Social media, we're bombarded with advertisements on the radio, driving down the freeway with all these billboards. We are inundated with, with all of... These folks in our community and our culture trying to convince us that happiness is one purchase away or a bigger car, nicer home, better clothes, whatever it might be. That's the culture we live in. And, and it's trying to convince us that we're discontent with where we are and that we will be happier if we buy into what they're trying to sell us. If, uh, if money or anything you can buy with money dominates your thoughts, stirs your deepest emotions, motivates your actions, 
more than God, then you have a problem with materialism or covetousness, as, as the Bible calls it. In fact, this is what our Savior said. This is what Jesus said in, in Luke 12, 15. And this is in the context of two brothers arguing over an inheritance. And this is what he says. He gives this warning. Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. So he's just saying that it comes in all shapes and sizes. And now listen to what he says. He says, beware of that. Be, beware of desiring after the things that you don't have because real life and real living does not consist in the abundance of the things we possess. Pretty profound. He's just saying, and in fact, we know that real life and real living is only, only found in him. Not in more stuff, but in him, in him alone. Now, take a look at your, uh, your sermon notes here. So how you think, feel, and handle wealth is a test that reveals the spiritual state of your heart. And so James has been giving us different tests, and here's the test of wealth. The wealthy, by the way, let me, let me just, another, another quick survey here, show of hands. How many, any, anybody here wealthy? Any, any rich people here with us? Yeah. Yes, 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 okay. Can I be your friend? I'm kidding. We're all wealthy. That's right. All of us are wealthy. In fact, let me define wealth for you. It's, it's there. It's on your notes. They're part of the intro. The wealthy are those who have more than they need to live. And you're probably thinking, where'd you get that, Pastor Ray? I just made it up. Okay? No, it's, it's actually the definition that uh, Paul gives in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you have more than you need to live then you are wealthy. See, if you have what you need, you, you have no discretion with your money. You have to use it all just to survive. But if you have any discretionary money, you're in the category of the wealthy. And that's pretty much most of us here, isn't it? There might be a few that are just barely m making ends meet. And uh, it really comes down to we have to define what we need and what we want. Do you need a cell phone? Well, you might for work, but most of us probably don't. How about cable TV? Mm, need that. I can't live without that. Or, I mean, I could go through a whole list of things that we, we say that are, are needs, but in reality, they're more like wants. And so sometimes we even confuse, we confuse that. And so here's the thing. It is not sinful to possess the blessings of wealth that varies from person to person by God's design, but it is a sin to take that which is a blessing from God and misuse it for our own ends. The more you have, the more you're in danger of misusing it. So James here is, is speaking to people who affirm faith in Christ and love for God, but the way they steward their wealth reveals that they obviously love their wealth more than God, which leads to all kinds of evil. First Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he says, will inevitably be judged by God. In fact, what's interesting, as I read this, you're going to go, this guy sounds just like an Old Testament prophet. Yes. It's almost like he's kind of ratcheting up a little few notches here as we're heading towards the end of the book of James. It's pretty intense, really intense. So we'll read it in just a, a minute. But here's what we're going to look at 
We're going to look at the do's and don'ts of stewarding the wealth that God has given us. That's where we're headed with our study. But let's pray first, and then we'll read our text, and then work through our notes. So God, we love your presence. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And God, we admit that we live in a culture of capitalism, commercialism, and consumerism that dominates our thoughts and stirs our deepest emotions and motivates our actions more than we would like to admit. And most of the time, we are blinded to this love of money in our own lives that is the root of all kinds of evil in our culture. And so we pray through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit, help us to see the covetousness in our own hearts and may it be expelled as we see that Christ is more desirable and more satisfying than all the money and possessions in this world, we pray in Jesus' glorious and beautiful name and everyone said, amen, amen. So let me, uh, let me read the text here, kind of bring you up to speed where we've been. This has been a phenomenal journey through James and... And so James chapter 1, we talked about the test of trials in our life and then temptation, and we talked about hearing, not just being a hearer of God's word, but being a doer, scripture, the importance of scripture in our life. Chapter 2 was about mercy, partiality, racism, um, favoritism. Second part of chapter 2 was saving faith. Faith without works is dead. And then chapter 3, we talked about our words, the words we speak. God's still working on me on that one. And I, I still need help. God's still working on me on that one. And then we talked about wisdom from above as far as our interaction with others, relationships. And then chapter four, more about relationships, conflict resolution. And then last weekend, we talked about plans, making sure that we plan with God in mind, leading the way. And now we talk about our wealth. Listen to what he says, chapter five, verse one. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Pretty heavy-duty stuff there. And so let me begin by reading to you. Uh, this is a story that I share in our Game of Life class, and it's called Whose Cookies Are They? A woman was waiting at the airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She read, munched cookies, and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, 
thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. <laughs> With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half and he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also so rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, then sought her book, which was almost complete. And as she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There were her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his, and he tried to share. <laughs> Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. <laughs> Whose cookies are they? Whose cookies are they? Let me share with you four biblical principles that are foundational for overcoming uh, materialism, and you're going to see them in our notes as we work through the notes. The first one is that all that we have has been given by God. This eliminates pride in our life. The second one is that all, all that we need is promised by God. That eliminates fear in our life. The third one is that all that we do is accountable to God, so that eliminates any carelessness in our management of our resources and finances that God has given us. And then the fourth one is all that we give is rewarded by God. That eliminates any kind of stinginess in our life. So let's work through our notes. Here we go. Do's and don'ts with our wealth. The first three verses deal with the accumulation of money, that is saving so let me reread it. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to refer back to this text. So let me read it and kind of give some explanation. He says, come now, you rich. Remember, that's all of us. He's talking to all of us. If we have more than what we need, we fit into that category. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Basically, just saying repent before you, before you stand before God and give an account of your life where you will really be repenting. So repent before you get there is what he's saying. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. So that's kind of speaking of, of just hanging on to things for too long where they just become rotten before your eyes because you're, in fact, he'll say you're hoarding this stuff. Verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded. Now, when you read that, you think, wait a minute, gold and silver doesn't corrode. Well, actually, in these days, it did. It was not pure gold but mixed with other alloys. And so it would actually uh, corrode. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. But here's the really a, the key part of this. He says, you have laid up treasure. The, the word there, the Greek literally means to store up excessively or to hoard. So you have laid up treasure to store up excessively or to hoard in the last days. That idea of the last days here is with no regard for the redemptive history of God's work and eternity. In other words, you're living as if things will continue as they are. No regards to the future or to the last days or to eternity is what he's saying here. Now, there's two extremes that we fall prey to when we talk about saving. Um, all of us fit into one of these two categories. 
and they're both wrong ways of, of dealing with our resources, but, but I've always been a saver. I've always saved. And guess what my beautiful bride is? She's not a saver, but she's a spender. Yes, she is. I didn't realize that until we were newly married, and you've heard the story of her coming home with six pairs of shoes that she had purchased. I didn't share that with anybody else in the previous services, but I'm sharing it with you right now just to get it off my back. Okay, I'm kidding. But, but actually, she came home, and I go, oh, my goodness, did you need all of those? She goes, yeah, but I got a great deal on them. And so, you know, it was interesting to realize that. But I always thought I was more spiritual than her because I was a saver. That's more spiritual, isn't it? And actually not realizing that the reason why I was saving is because it was my security and I had misplaced my security. I put it in my bank account as opposed to God and I shouldn't have done that. And so that, therefore it was driven by more fear and pride, actually pride more so than anything. And her spending, and when you're a spender, you tend to spend because of significance. So saving oftentimes is because of security. Spending is oftentimes because of significance. You buy those things to make yourself feel better about yourself. So okay, quick survey here, show of hands. How many, how many savers do we have in the house? Savers, you just, you just love to save, love to save. Okay, love to save, cool, okay. How many spenders? How many spenders? Spenders, oh, it's about, it's kind of balanced, it's balanced. Actually, this service had a little bit more spenders, uh-oh. Now, what happens when a spender meets a spender and they get married? Oh, my goodness, they are broke and broke more than ever before. I know a few. I know if you, they, they go from being broke to really, really broke, and then even more so broke. Somebody's got to put on the brakes. I was the one to put the brakes on in our family, but then she also helped me to kind of loosen up a little bit, because I was kind of a tightwad, okay? I was just kind of a, I was too tight with the resources and all that, and a lot of it was driven by fear, and hers was driven by, you know, pride and other things too, and we both had to work through that, but just keep that in mind. There's those two extremes you don't want to fall prey to. Here's your fill in the blank. Do save faithfully, but don't hoard it. Do save faithfully, but don't hoard it. This is what he's, he's teaching us. He's talking about hoarding here, but when we look at the fuller context of Scripture, what Scripture teaches us, the balance here, is do save it faithfully, but don't hoard it. Proverbs 21.20, precious treasure, precious treasure in oil or in the wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. He's actually talking about someone that's kind of living from paycheck to paycheck. Kind of you just devour. You don't store up anything. You're just living and spending it all. So he's talking about that excessive other extreme of being a spender. He's also coming against in this text about uh, hoarding also. And so uh, as I worked through these notes, you'll see that I gave you a lot of smaller notes in there. These are my thoughts. And so as I worked through this, I was asking myself, okay, so what does that look like in our, in our life? And what would be some good questions? So here's my questions. How much should we save? That was my first question as I related to that. And all the financial experts, I'm looking out over the audience. We got a financial expert back here. We got, we got one right there. We got one right over here. In the first service, we had a few in that service. Uh, so we got a lot of financial experts. And I think that most of them would say, they could disagree with me, but not right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the, the financial experts... Uh, like, uh, actually, I, I was just talking about Ron Blue and Larry Burkett were the early guys that I studied from, and then now we have Dave Ramsey. But they would say anywhere from three to six months, you need to save up, you need to have in the bank account. And even some would say even like nine months to a year, because if you're unemployed, how are you going to survive that unemployment? It might take you two to three months to get a job. You need to draw up one. Also, your car eventually is going to... Uh, 
it's going to need some work on it, okay? You've got maintenance there. You've got a refrigerator that's going to go out. You've got a roof that needs to be redone. You've got all these things that eventually, if you're looking ahead, if you're forward thinking, you need to have a bank account to draw upon so that you can take care of those needs, those things. And so they would say three to six months expenses and then begin to work for, with a retirement plan, even at a very young age. I could talk more about that, but I'm not. Here's the next question. Why do Americans save so little? Most would agree that Americans are not good at saving in, in, in spite of the abundance that we have. Why are we not good at saving? The answer is because we are secular. Secular is a word that means nowism. We live for now. We live for now. In fact, verse 3 of our text, you have laid up treasure in the last days. No thought of the future or eternity. That's the idea. Here's the next question. What do I need to do to start saving? Easy answer, live on less. Live on less. So the 10-10-80 rule is what I've taught for years. So you learn to live on the 80%. Identify what, what 80% would be of what you're bringing in regularly. And then the first 10% goes to the Lord. The second 10% goes to you. And then you live on that 80%. Also, you need to learn to be content. You got to learn to be content. One of the things that drives our our compulsive, impulsive spending habits, our bad spending habits and going into debt is because, because of discontentment. And so we've got to learn to be content. And covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in Christ. The opposite of covetousness is contentment in Christ. Now listen to me. If you love Christ, if you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if you truly do that, you will be content regardless of the circumstances because you will always have what you most want. You have him. And if you have him, oh my goodness. I'm convinced intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. We just sang about it. In his presence is fullness of joy. Listen to me. There is a contentment in Christ that all the money in this world and all the stuff you can buy with that money in this world cannot give you that same contentment. In fact, I believe that there is an a, um, inconsolable human longing within all of us that there's nothing in creation that can satisfy us like the creator. I came across uh, one of my cards here. Of, uh, that I'll put different statements and sayings on a card. This is a C.S. Lewis statement, and you've probably heard this before. If I have a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the explanation is I was made for another world. You were made for another world, not this world. This world won't satisfy. Only his world, only he can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. That's why we get together every week, because I can remind you of that, okay? I need to be reminded of that, because we're, be, we're being dogged by the commercialism and the consumption in our culture today. And so, so we desperately need to hear that. Why do we save? Why do we save? It's on your notes there. It's in the smaller print. Why do we save? It's not for security. It's not for security. Your security is in Jesus. 
There's times in our life when Nancy and I were transitioning from one job when I was a pipe fitter welder working out of Palo Verde and I was part of the plumbing and pipe fitters local union 469 for a number of years and I was transitioning to the fire department. I started at the bottom. I needed some savings just for us to survive and we ran our savings down but it wasn't our security. Christ was our security in all of that, even at transition. So why do you save... We save for stewardship because we want to honor God with what he's given us because it's all his anyway. That's what stewardship means. I'm going to manage it in a way that honors him, but also for strategy because if you start socking some away and it begins to pile up, you begin to put it into investments. Invest it. Get it to work for you. Get your money to work for you and not only for stewardship and strategy, but for ministry. Oh my goodness, the joy my wife and I have had for many years to see a need and to be able to write a check here. That's so good. There's something that's really satisfying about that. Helping out people that are in need. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely amazing. Or giving to a ministry and helping them out. And that way, if you've got money to drop on, you can do that. So that's why you save. So here's the underlying basic idea and principle. All that we have has been given by God. If you forget that, pride drives our excessive saving or spending. So you got to get to the root of the problem. We think it's ours. No, it's not ours. He's given this to us, and he wants us to manage it for him in a way that would honor him. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what makes you different from others, and what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? It's all his. It's all his. My life is his. That's what it means to be a Christian. He owns me. He created me, and he bought me at, at an unbelievable price on the cross. Here's the next one, appropriation of money, acquiring appropriation of money. Verse 4, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of not just the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of the galaxies. This is pretty heavy stuff. Now, here's the next couple fill in the blanks. Do make it honestly, but don't steal it. Do make it honestly, but don't steal it. Ephesians 4, 28. Uh, by the way, stealing comes in all shapes and sizes. You know that, don't you? It's more than just somebody breaking into your car. One of the reasons why we got security is because we would have people breaking into your cars right now. But we got security here to prevent that. But it's more, that's more, uh, that's, there's, there's different forms of stealing other than someone breaking into your car, breaking into your house or whatever. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Listen to what Ephesians 4.28 says. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with any anyone in need. And here's the question I've often asked people. When is a thief no longer a thief? Typically, they respond when he quits stealing. No, that's not true. When he quits stealing, he gets a job and he starts giving. Because then he's got a sense of purpose and meaning in his, in his life. And he's now no longer driven by this, this fear that he's not going to have enough because he knows that God will take care of his needs. And in fact, he's not a, a, a reservoir of resources. He becomes a river of those resources ministering to the folks around him or her. And so how do we steal? Here's a, just a short list. Maybe you could add to this list. How do we steal? By not paying our debts. That's how we steal. As an employer, not paying people for what they deserve. Or we charge too much for our labor. 
or we sell something and not tell the buyer what's wrong with it, or we cheat on taxes, or we, we're lazy at work and we rip off the employer. I worked out at Palo Verde for four years out there, was a uh, welder, pipe fitter, had uh, just a ton of different certifications on different kinds of uh, metal, enjoyed that tremendously, but what I was blown away with is how much stuff was ripped off by uh, my coworkers. And what they would do, their little trick was that they'd have these big, uh, these big lunch boxes. They were pretty big lunch boxes, and they would put a false bottom in it. And underneath that false bottom, they'd put all kinds of tools. And so when you'd walk out, at the end of the day, you'd have to open up your lunch box so that the security could look into it. But they couldn't see anything in there because it was below that false bottom. There were guys that would actually, during the colder time of the year, would wear a jacket, and they would wrap things up in their jacket. I'm sure there were probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment stolen out of there, probably more than that even, probably up in the millions. You want to know why it costs so much to build Palo Verde? <laughs> I, I, was, I worked with some of these guys. I, I was blown away. These guys didn't need to do that. They made a good living. I made a great living while I worked out there. There was no reason for that. But that's the culture we live in. I just, uh, I know some small business owners just recently had to fire uh, one of their employers, uh, employees because he was ripping them off, taking their product. It's all they can do to make ends meet and to survive. And here's a guy that they had entrusted, and he's ripping them off before their eyes. They begin to see what he was doing, and they go, oh, my goodness, that's crazy, absolutely crazy. So there's just a, a lot of different ways you can do that uh, and, and, and be a thief Proverbs 10, 4, it says, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So laziness causes poverty, but a hand of, of the diligent makes rich. So here's my questions underneath this one. How much money can I make? Does the Bible set kind of a limit on how much money I can make? Here's my answer for that. As much as you want, if it doesn't hurt your health, family, other people, or yourself spiritually. You can make as much as you want as long as it fits within that criteria. Here's the next question. What is the key to, to winning at work? Show of hands real quick. Uh, how many, uh, or you can answer out loud, how many would say that the most important factor in work is uh, attitude? I'll give you the options here first of all, okay. Attitude or ability? Which one is most important at work? Is it attitude or your ability? How many, how many would think attitude, attitude, okay? How many would say ability? Okay, unless you're going in for brain surgery and you're saying I, you, you want a doc that has the ability to do that. Of course, you want one with a good attitude. You don't want him digging into your brain going, nah, this is a waste of time. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Hurry up, let's get this over with. It's like, ay, ay, ay. No, you want good, I mean, obviously you want attitude and ability, but I've seen where the guy didn't have quite the ability, but he had a good attitude, and he learned over time, and you were able to train him. But I've seen where someone had the great ability, but boy, they had a bad attitude, and they created major problems in that organization. So here's, here's what I've got on my notes. Number one reason, attitude is the number one reason people get jobs and promotions. Statistically, all the research says it's attitude. It's attitude. In fact, lazy, irresponsible, unmotivated, hard to get along with are words that should never, never, never be attached to Christians. We should be the hardest workers on the job with the best attitude. 
because we know Jesus. Our contentment's in him, even if it's a lousy job, because we find contentment in him regardless of our circumstances. I know of uh, mechanics. I know of guys that do a lot of home repairs. They don't even want to work for Christians because they've been ripped off by them. That should not be. That should not be true. They should be saying, man, I want to work for the Christians. In fact, I want to hire a few Christians because, oh, my goodness, we make a lot of money when Christians are working for us because they have a great attitude and they're hard workers. That's what we should be hearing from people, but too often we don't. We don't hear that. And so I think that's what he's, he's hitting at here, and I think he really wants us to understand that. Why is excellence in the workplace important? Two reasons, because it is a witness to the world and worship to God. Believe me, when I worked out at Palo Verde, that was hard. I drove an hour and a half just to get out there. It was before 101 existed, and then an hour and a half back home. I spent like 12 hours a day going to and from work, but I made a good living for my family. That was what was most important. But it was hard, but I used that as an opportunity for witness and worship. I knew that ultimately, I'm not working for them. I'm working for him. God. In fact, listen to what it says in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now listen to me. Whatever you're doing, you're not doing it for that company as much as you're doing it for him, to honor him, to bring glory to him. Use it as a worship experience and use it as an opportunity to witness. So when people go, wow, why do you have such a good attitude? You can tell them about the contentment you find in Jesus. That's why. And so, here's the underlying principle. All that we need is promised by God. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all of your needs according to God's riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God shall supply all of your needs. Now, you may be here this morning, and all you can do to make ends meet, I'm telling you, that promise is for you. You can deal with the fear that oftentimes drives our our, dis- our dishonesty with money, with that verse, God, you're going to take care of my needs. So I'm telling you here, based on the authority of God's word, God will supply your needs. You don't need to be anxious and stressed out. I love the verses that we read during our worship time. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So trust in him. It's about trusting, looking to him. Here's the next one, allocation of money, spending. That's verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Woo, what is he talking about there? He's talking about judgment. He's talking about judgment. Everybody look up here. Here we go. Here we go. No one, listen to me, no one will get away with anything on this planet Earth. I know we look in our culture today, we see a lot of injustices happening. We see people that almost seems like, wow, I can't believe that they get away with that. I can't believe what they're doing. They're ripping a lot of people off. It seems like they just become richer and richer as they do that. No one gets away with anything because one of these days, the Bible says, it's called the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's gonna come back and he's gonna settle the score, make things right, balance the books, Did you hear what he said here? You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. 
I want to be on the other side of that, okay? Away from that slaughter, that judgment through Christ Jesus. I know the only way I can do that is through Christ Jesus. And, and, and to live for him. And so just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. When you, when you have something that rises up within you and you're thinking, oh my goodness, that's, such, that's so in, unjust. You, you ought to pity them, actually if you really believe what it's saying here and about Jesus' judgment upon all mankind, everyone will stand before God and give an account of their lives to him. He's the king of the universe. He rules, he's sovereign. And we will all give an account of our lives before him. So do spend it wisely, don't waste it. This is what he's saying here. Do spend it wisely, but don't waste it. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty, so it's kind of unwise or foolish, comes only to poverty. So here's my questions under this one. What are the biblical principles for wise use of wealth? Well, there's five biblical principles. I've taught this from the early days of Desert Breeze. You're going to hear this from all the financial guys, but here they are, budget. Budget is telling your money where to go. It's kind of making that list. Okay, we're going to spend this much on our house, this much on our car, this much on, on whatever clothes and food and all of those things. So budget is telling your money where to go rather than finding out where it went later. And then good record keeping. Realizing that when you stop by Starbucks or Circle K or each time you do that, and you do that maybe a couple times a week, and then after a month, you, you, you might have dumped 100 bucks or so just by doing that. So you're doing good, good record keeping, keeping track of even those little nickel, nickels and dimes that can add up over time. So you got budget, record keeping, and then you got contentment, finding your contentment in Christ. That will give you greater self-control against the impulsive, compulsive spending habits that we all struggle with. And then, of course, out of that would be generosity. Here's the next question. Where should I establish my standard of living? Oh, my goodness, this is a big one right here. Where should I, where should I establish my standard of living? Ask God. You need to ask God... And it is based on God's plan for your life. Your needs are not what is necessary to sustain life. Your needs are what is necessary to do the will of God in your life. And it's going to vary from person to person. Where God guides, God provides. God's provision is not based on the ups and downs of our economy. So here's a, just uh, share a little bit what we did in our life with Nancy and I, uh, so I worked with, I worked construction for a number of years, then I made the transition into the fire department, became a, a firefighter paramedic with Phoenix Fire, and so that transition, obviously, you move from making big bucks to not very good bucks at all, and having to work my way up through that, through the ranks, and then, and then we made the transition from being a firefighter, making really good bucks, to becoming kind of a pastor here at Desert Breeze full-time. I had actually intended on... Uh, Finishing out my career with the Phoenix Fire, uh, I was gonna—I had eight years to go uh, to hit my 20. But between my family and my kids being in high school and the stress of that job, I was working a very busy station, running a lot of really hard calls. And then the church, I had to decide what am I gonna let go of. And I—I I couldn't let go of the family, of course. <laughs> I, had to, I had to keep the family. I had to keep them. I was like, "You guys can go. I'm gonna—I'm gonna go fire department, church." Well, that's crazy, isn't it? Of course. So I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna focus on them because it was. I was doing all that for my family and to and that. And so it was either the fire department or the church. And the church had grown crazy at the time. We had already hired an executive pastor. And uh, so when I came on full time here, 
um, I wasn't making the same kind of money that I was making on the fire department or what I could make on the fire department. And so it put a little bit of financial bind on us, but I knew that where God guides, he provides, and he was going to lead us. And so... Um, we had homeschooled our kids up until high school years, and then we sent them to a private school, and that was really costly. And so uh, I, my wife was able to, she went to work, and she got three, three jobs. She had to work three jobs. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. She got a job. She got a really good job God provided for us and was able to lead us through that time and meet our needs. Where God guides, he provides. He provided that for us. We were able to send our kids to school and then get them out of our house as fast as we could. I'm kidding, of course I am. But, but that was all part of it. But we had to, what, what we did through all of that is that we, we began to we establish, we drove our stake at what our standard of living would be. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to make all those transitions. So our very first home that we had, and I'll talk more about this as we kind of work through this. Our very first home that we had was over here off of Mauna Loa. Small home. It was a good home, a nice home. But we wanted to sell it because we wanted to buy a piece of property over here where we currently live. But we couldn't sell our home. The market was down. And so we realized, we said, okay, it's not going to sell. But God, you know what? We're content. We both came to that realization. If this is where you have for us, we're okay with that. And it was shortly after that, our home sold. It was kind of interesting in that. And I think God was just really working on our heart to find if we were going to be really content in him and allow him to lead, our, lead the way. So we were able to sell it. We bought a piece of property and built a house over there. I was the general contractor on that house. And we actually built a house uh, that was bigger than what we could have afforded at that time. But because I saved substantially because I was the general contractor on that. But we drove our stake at that time and we said, we will not move from this house. This is where we will raise our kids. And we will pay this off. And we had a 15-year mortgage. We paid it off in about 12 to 13 years. And so we, were, so we were able to move into, it was tool debt, and we moved into where we were really debt-free after that. But it was just through strategizing and kind of working through that. And believe me, by paying that house off early and then not moving from there, and you'll see as I talk about it more, is that we have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars on interest. And of course, you know what we had to do with that money. We had to send a couple kids to college and we paid, you know, uh, we, we've given to a lot through ministry. And so there was just a lot of things that we could do as a result of that. But here's what I want you to understand as it relates to this idea of your standard of living. I want you to think about this. Is your standard of living going up as fast as your income? See, the question is, when your income goes up, the question should be, should I raise my standard of living or my standard of giving? Our tendency in our culture is to raise our standard of living. See, Christians should be living well below what they are capable of, uh, of living because of their radical generosity. The more you make, the greater the distance between the lifestyle you live and the lifestyle you're capable of living. And, and so that's what you should be thinking about. So we drove our stake, and we realized we could probably even, we could have moved from there. We had equity. Woohoo! we're going to go, and we're going to move and build, have a bigger home and, and all of this. But we didn't do that. We stayed put. We stayed there. We said, no, this is our standard of living. And as my wages increased, it gave greater opportunity. And as we managed our resources appropriately, it gave opportunity to bless others and to minister, to pour money into God's kingdom through Desert Breeze and beyond this. And so it really comes down to where, where's your standard of living? Where's it going to be? Where's that? There should be a gap 
between what you could, the standard of living you could live and where you're actually living because you have that margin in your life because you want to be wise with what God has given you. Now, what is the most unwise thing we believe about spending? That debt is a lifelong friend rather than a short-term visitor. And, and, I, and I said all that to say that my wife and I have lived a debt-free life for many years. We don't get ourselves into debt. We have never gotten ourselves into debt. We've been very careful about, about debt. And, and let, me, let me kind of walk you through this. It says, Proverbs 22, 7, the borrower is the slave to the lender. So here, let me give you some suggestions here just to keep it very practical. Don't buy depreciating items on the credit system. It's not wise. Don't buy depreciating items on the credit system, big screen TV, furniture, going out to eat. Now, if you're putting it on a credit card, pay that credit card off at the end of the month. If you can't do that, don't go. Don't do that. Don't buy that. For years in this home that we built, we, we didn't even have furniture in our main area. The kids loved it. It was like a little gym where we played all kinds of games in there, but it took a long time before we even bought furniture. We're not going to go into debt for furniture. Just one of the many things. Know the difference between plague debt and tool debt. Plague debt is undue pressure, high interest, no valuable asset to show. Tool debt would be a home mortgage within reason, education within reason. By the way, a lot of our kids nowadays are getting into debt over their head with education. Some of them are coming out with their master's degree or, and beyond. Hundred, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. That's insane. That doesn't make sense. And then now they're strapped paying that off to advance their career, and they're going to start really low on the totem pole, you know, as they start out in the market, and so it's going to be really hard for them. But, but know the difference between plague debt and, and tool debt. Here's another, uh, some advice that my wife and I have learned through the years. Every car loan should be shorter than the last until you pay cash. We have paid cash for our last four cars. Now, they've all been skateboards with motors on them, but... Uh, <laughs> There's, is there anything wrong with that? Actually, we bought Scions. We don't buy expensive cars. We just buy what we can afford, but, but we've paid cash for those cars. So here's how this works, paying cash for a car. It's pretty simple. It's just basic uh, math and, and logic. So you buy a car, and it, I bought, when I bought my pickup truck back after I graduated from high school, it was like a three-year, three, three years I paid on it, but nowadays I think it's like five or six years as you pay on it. So you pay five or six years on it, and there's a lot of, interest, I'm sure, with that. But once you get that thing paid for, don't trade it back in. Hang on to it. Take good care of it. And then take that money that you were paying that with and begin to sock that away in the bank. And that car should last, if it's a Ford, it should last. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, it should last, you know, maybe another 10 years if you take good care of it. Now, think about that. If you've got 10 years of paying into that, what you just paid off in five or six years you could take trade-in value of that car. You're going to be paying cash for a car before long. That's what you should be doing. You should be doing that. Be thinking. You've got to be thinking about this. That's just wise financial management. Every car loan should be shorter than the last until you can pay cash. Here's another one. Here's a big thing, and I talked about this already. One mortgage loan per customer. Move as often as you want, but, buy, but pay enough to keep the mortgage the same. This is what I see where a lot of young couples get into trouble, is that they, they buy this new fancy home, and then they live there for about, you know, six to ten years, and then they move to a bigger home. 
they start all over again with a 30-year mortgage. And then they do that again after about five or six years. Oh my goodness, you're never going to get caught up. And you're going to be literally spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest. You ought to be thinking about, hey, maybe I could pay this thing off in about 12 to 15 years. And then we'll move on from here, and maybe we could, could move into something else, and we'll just rent this out, and we'll make a little income from that or whatever. Start thinking about having your money work for you, not you working for money and, and patting the pockets of all these people with their high interest rates. You don't want to do that. You want to be wise. The goal is to be debt-free. Imagine what God's people could do to extend God's kingdom if we were debt-free. My, my wife and I have lived debt-free. This church is debt-free. We, we've always lived by these principles. You're going to hear Scott here in a few minutes talk about that. I'll have him up, come up and talk a little bit about where we're headed, what God's been doing. But, but this is what you need to know. This is the most important thing I'm about to tell you. If you know Jesus, you are living a spiritually debt-free life right now because there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. No more debt when it comes to you in God. All of your sins, all of your guilt and shame have been passed on to the Savior. You stand before him completely perfect in his righteousness. That is amazing. By the way, even if you, could, if you, if you are debt-free, being debt-free between you and him, God, is so much better by far than anything else you could ever imagine or dream of. Okay, so all that we do is accountable to God. All that we do is accountable to God, Romans 14, 12. Uh, carelessness, if I don't believe this, carelessness drives the wasting of our time, talent, and treasure. Listen to me. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your time, your valuable time, and your talent, and your treasure invested into eternity and eternal things. Life is like a coin. You can spend it however you want to, but you can only spend it once. Once you've spent it, it's over. We're running out of time. The older you get, you can just mark that off the calendar. You're running out of time. There should be an urgency. That's what he's saying here. be an urgency in our life to look ahead into the future and into eternity and see how I can invest my resources appropriately. And that takes us to the next one here, the application of money investing. There's three primary ways you can invest your money, stock market, real estate, be a business owner, and very few are good in all three of those. Um, but those are the three options. I'm not going to talk about any of those three options. I want to teach you how to use your temporary resources, your investments for, for permanent or eternal good. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So in that day, the Christians were being persecuted, and obviously they did not resist their persecutors. They did what their Savior did and prayed for their forgiveness. God forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they, they, they went to their deaths, worshiping and praising God in that contentment that only he can bring. But evidently in James's time also, the rich were, were buying off judges and circumventing justice is what's happening here. And wealth gives me much more than buying ability. It gives me influence and authority. We can use our wealth for good or for bad in our society. We can use our influence for good or for bad. So do give it generously, but don't do it indiscriminately or grudgingly. 
Proverbs 11, 25, and 24, one gives freely yet grows all the richer, another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. So what should I give? Here it is, tithes, 10%, tithes, there's your verses, meant to fund the work of God. Offerings, offerings is over and above, dairy to move campaign, missions, efforts, um, and then uh, coffee bar, that's, that's, that would be offerings, okay? Okay, maybe not, but yeah, it is kind of. Uh, you get a coffee, and that goes to missions. And so uh, alms is, is for the poor. Where do we pay our tithes? That's a big question that I'm often asked. Where do, you, where do you get your spiritual food, and who do you call in times of crisis? Well, it should be your local church family, and that's where you pay your tithes. How should I give? Here's the list. Do it consistently, every payday, willingly, not under compulsion, or grudgingly, joyfully, as an overflow of God's love, sacrificially, your best, not your leftovers, expectantly, look for God's blessing. You can see all the verses there. So here's what you need to keep in mind. When I give to my church family, I am giving to the greatest force for good on this planet Earth for all eternity. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. Jesus said that in the 16th chapter of Matthew. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. If you want to get smack dab in the middle of what God's up to, you get involved in a local church family like Desert Breeze and you begin to see God change people's lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely amazing. Why should I give? Well, the greatest use of my money is to invest it in getting people to heaven. How do I do that? By helping unchurched people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's our mission statement here at Desert Breeze. Here's the underlying truth. All that we give is rewarded by God. Matthew 6, 3 through 4, it says, don't let your right hand know what your, your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Do it in secret, and your Father who sees you do that in secret will reward you. So God rewards us. Three things happen when I give financially to further God's kingdom. Number one, I help people become Christians. Number two, I make friends for eternity. Number three, I earn eternal rewards is what the Bible says. So use your temporary resources for permanent good. By the way, let me just say this. You guys are amazingly generous. We've never passed the plate here in 27 years. And you guys know how to give because I know that you've encountered Jesus. And it's evident. I had somebody not too long ago in one of our Game of Lives, they said they were coming from another church where they beat the sheep every week to try to get them to give. And they go, well, you guys don't really ever bring up the topic much except for when you're kind of teaching through a text in the Scripture and it talks about that and then you guys talk about it. And he says, man, why do you guys do that? And I go, I have no idea. I think it's just the grace of God. But I think that this is a group of people that really know Jesus. And I said, if you just point people to Jesus and they understand the gospel and see how much God has given to them, they can't help but want to give to others. It just becomes a natural overflow of their life. Genuine Christians will be growing Christians, will be giving Christians. And they will be going into the world and for all, all for his glory. Heaven should be full of people who cheer when you get there because you've invested into their life. Jim Elliott, one of the five missionaries murdered while trying to evangelize a remote primitive tribe in Ecuador in 1956, this is what he said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So let me give you just some advice here very quickly. This is getting help and getting maybe your act together in this area. If you have compulsive spending or gambling problems, you need to go to Celebrate Recovery. 
If you have a problem with motivation, organization, or planning, you need to go through our Financial Peace University. Call the church office. You can talk with the couple that leads that. You can get personal consultation with them. And then if you need accountability, get married. Okay, you don't need to get married. Get a friend. Get involved in one of our life groups. Believe me, marriage will hold you accountable. There's no doubt about that. But you don't need to have that accountability by getting married. But you can do it just by having a friend or a life group. I'm going to invite Scott Femelli up here. He's our executive pastor. He's just going to share with you just very quickly a little bit of what God's been doing here and what our plans are in the future as we build out the rest of our facility. Thanks, Scott. I'm back. How's it going? So I'm going to probably repeat some things that Ray has already said. And uh, so how is it that a church can start with about 16 people in someone's living room, Ray's living room, and end up here without passing the plate? It's because God is generous and giving to people who give their hearts to them and become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Because this happened because of God's grace and generosity, but he did it through you. That's how it happens. And since we've been in this building, our weekly ministry needs have been funded beyond, beyond our budget. And not only that, we've been, continue, we've been able to continue to make improvements that are expenses beyond our budget. But not only that, we've been able to do that without touching our operating funds, but looking, uh, but doing those without, without taking out of our savings, out of take, without taking out of our dairy to move uh, account. Our Dairy to Move account is our savings account that we put gifts for the building fund into, and it's dedicated specifically for that. But all these improvements that we've done recently, we haven't even touched it. And it's because of God's grace and His generosity. How does that happen? It's because we're focused on our number one priority, and that is making disciples. And disciples are fully devoted followers of Christ who then become generous. And that's how God does it, and it's an amazing thing. And so also over the past couple of years, uh, we've made necessary improvements to the exterior of the building. We've made our facility safer by installing a top-notch security surveillance system. We've remodeled and expanded both our youth room and our children's ministry area. Did we do that to look good? It does look good, by the way, but we didn't do it to look good. We did it to expand our capacity to do ministry, to reach more kids for Christ, to reach more families for Christ. We've also expanded our cafe so we could increase its efficiency so we could give more money to missions. And we've done that. And we've done that. And it's because we've focused on our on not building a monument by building, but by building our ministry, by building into the kingdom work that we do here. And so as the wheels of ministry have turned, the entire staff have really continued to be really good stewards of the budget that they're allowed to do ministry, to serve, to serve our church family, to serve our kids and everything, and they've been really, really good at it. Really good at it. But these improvements I've been talking about, um, we've been able to do that beyond our budget and so it's, it's not to look good, it's to increase our capacity. But as a church, what we've always, uh, I've already alluded to this, but to put into uh, the, the, the area to move account, we've, we've put in the money that we've been able to save operationally. 
And I announced this last June, but I just want to remind you that we were able to, over a period of time, save a lot of money, but we put $600,000 in our Dairy to Move savings account last June, and hopefully by the end of this year, I hope to put another $150,000 in that to, uh, to do our improvements. So what I'm telling you here is a combination of an update, but also um, a forecast. And so that was the update, which is more like, which is better said as a praise report. So the forecast, I'm going to tell you about it, is more of a prayer request. So our tenant leases, we have three tenants. They're about to expire in December, on December 31st, 2019. So we have one year to really finish strong so that we can finish out our final improvements and, again, expand our uh, capacity to do ministry. So the, the space that our tenants take up right now represents about 13,000 square feet. And I'm estimating that it's going to cost about $2.5 million to finish those improvements. And so we have already a million dollars in the bank. And so whatever we can come up with by the end of 2019 added to that, along with about $1.5 million in equity that we have in our building currently, I think we can accomplish those improvements and start on those things by, the, by early 2020. But what it's going to take is, is, is to stay focused. Stay focused on making disciples who are fully devoted followers of Christ and in turn will be generous to help us to do that through uh, their giving to what God is doing here. So our prayer is that we'll, God will do what he says he does that when we give our hearts to him, that we, when we give ourselves to discipleship and growing into the likeness of Christ, that he will bless us to be a blessing. And uh, so we're going to stay, stay focused on our number one priority, which is making disciples. Are you guys in it with us? Yes. So what's going to happen after we get done with the rest of the building and build it all up? Well, we're going to continue to make disciples, disciples for sure. But our, our financial goal from then on will be to pay this building off as quickly as we can. And then when we do that, we're going to take that money and expand our ministry outreach opportunities. Maybe we're going to reach further into the community. Maybe it's going to be abroad. Maybe it will be even include uh, planting some churches. I'm thinking mountain breeze. <laughs> huh? Yeah. Or how about, how about ocean breeze? <laughs> right? That's Ray. I'll do the mountain breeze. You I'll do, do the ocean, ocean breeze. Yeah. And we'll leave the rest of them here to do desert breeze. Okay. <laughs> cool. So that's what our plan. That's the update. And that's our uh, forecast. And, uh, you know, it's all going to be for, in, uh, for God's glory. But it's going to be dependent on him. And, and we just get to, to participate. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you. All right. Good job, man. Outstanding. So here's, here's the motive. Here's the motive. This is how we uh, conclude this morning. Here's the motive. Paul gives us the, the motive for all of what we do for him. The best two chapters on giving in the New Testament are 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Paul is wanting to help the Corinthian church to grow in the grace of generosity. And what's interesting about this is that he doesn't put pressure directly on their will by saying, hey, I'm an apostle and I command you to give. He doesn't do that. Nor does he put pressure on their emotions by telling them stories about how much the poor are suffering and how much more they have than the sufferers. This is what he does. He takes him right back to the gospel and he gives us 
what I believe is the best definition of grace, and it's found in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And this is what he says. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. And what he's saying is think deeply on his costly grace for you, and as it ravishes your heart, you will want to give like he did. Next weekend, we're going to talk about uh, how to persevere in tough times. Tough times don't last. Tough people do. We're going to look at perseverance next weekend. Let's pray. So, God, we love you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. And we thank you for sending your son to rescue, redeem, reconcile us back to you. He became poor so that we might become rich in you. So out of the wealth of the gospel, may we live in the reality that all that we have has been given by you. All that we need is promised by you. All that we do is accountable to you. And all that we give is rewarded by you for your glory in your son's beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a very happy Thanksgiving.